Hello, this is Paul Fahey and Monica Pope, the host of Apostles Field Guide, a podcast where we explore the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the Catholic Church to become agents of mercy in our world. Today on the podcast, we're talking about part one of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops document, Open Wide Our Hearts. Monica and I really enjoyed this discussion and have really enjoyed this document, so we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Today we're talking about Open Wide Our Hearts, The Enduring Call to Love, A Pastoral Letter Against Racism, from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB. They wrote this in November of 2018, or rather they they published it, and it was voted on and approved uh, in November of 2018. It was approved with a vote of 241-4, three against, and one vote abstaining from all the bishops of the United States. Even though this isn't a magisterial document, it represents the heart and mind of, of the American church. So this document had been in the works for a while, Um, The USCCB has, I believe, two other documents on racism, one from 78. Actually, it looks like uh, three, one from 1958, Discrimination and Christian Conscience, one from 1968, a National Race Crisis, and then the most recent one was from 1979, Brothers and Sisters to Us. The USCCB had been working on an, another pastoral letter on racism for a while, but then the, uh, the, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in August of 2017 uh, really sped up that process. And I think they, they started an ad hoc committee to make sure this thing was published and it was approved a year later, 2018. I did want to say that... <clears throat> open wide our hearts and the previous document brothers and sisters to us so even from the very outset here white centrality is i mean it's built in right brothers and sisters to us um open wide our hearts so there's definitely white centrality built into the title of open wide our hearts and yet this Uh, document from the bishops is an exhortation for me to examine my own heart. So I'm just currently just noting the, the, the white centrality of the whole thing. I'm also going to note that um, we'll be two white people talking about racism. So so the document uses the book of, of Micah chapter Mm -hmm. six, verse eight as kind of an outline. So it quotes that, that passage saying, You have been told, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, only to do justice and to love goodness and to walk humbly with your God. So those three actions, do justice, love goodness, walk humbly with your God, those are the three main sections of of this document. Uh, So the document begins with an introduction and then hits those three points. So today we're going to be talking about the introduction, the first one, which, which is to do justice. In the introduction, the bishops spend a lot of time defining what racism is. Yes. And then in that first section, the do justice section, it talks about original justice and what God's plan was, 
It talks about the fall and sin entered into that. And then it talks about um, the importance of knowing and listening to the stories of our brothers and sisters. And then it goes into that. It goes into uh, very briefly speaking about the experience of Native Americans in our con country, the experience of African-Americans in our country, the experience Hispanics. of Hispanics in our country. And that's most of what that section is. It's just yes. kind of outlying in a brief way in attempt to, to listen to what these experiences are. So let's start from, um, let's go into the, the beginning of the introduction here. The document starts with uh, my favorite, one of my favorite scripture quotes from 1 John 3, 1. See what love the Father has bestowed on us, that we may be called the children of God. And yet, so we are. And so at the very beginning, at the outset here, it just sets the tone. Um, the reason why this is important is because we're talking about our brothers and sisters in the Lord, persons upon whom the Father has bestowed the title children of God. They go on to then to talk about what racism is, which is the opposite of seeing this reality in persons of color. This very first paragraph, it reminds me of the first paragraph of, of the Catechism, where it talks about, like, the mission of God is to bring all people back to himself. There's very much this sense of making everyone one. I think that that's repeated a couple times in this paragraph here, right? God is always, he's uniting and bringing together. He's creating a family. And we see that throughout scripture too. He doesn't save people individually. He creates a family and then a nation and the nation of Israel. And then through Christ, he expands that out to the entire world. And uh, the great mandate at, the, at Jesus's ascension is to go and baptize all nations the Holy Spirit and the work of God is always trying to bring people together. And you juxtapose that with, with what is racism, and it's, it's creating divisions. Yes, divisions amongst people who were um, created for unity. Um, the document talks about, so I'm, I'm, it's, a perfect, it's a perfect place for them to start, and it's a perfect place for us to start, too. Um, the love that comes from God and unites us to God um, so we have often talked, Paul, you and I, that divinization, that particular, that particularly astonishing and mysterious kind of unity is largely ignored or misunderstood by Christians and by Catholics. If we rightly or even begin to rightly um, understand the mystery of divinization, union not just merely meaning that God gathers us together, not like a really cohesive neighborhood or something. Union meaning that God actually draws us into his divine life and, sh and pours his divine life into each one of us, making us one with him. The same way Jesus said that, the, that he and the Father are one and why they want us to be one the same way. So it's not just a proximity thing. Um, it's it's Catechism 221, right? Innermost, uh, secret. Mm -hmm. in, innermost secret of God is that he's an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. It's that type of unity. Yes. So if we even begin to understand that rightly, 
racism then also racism takes on a even a casual racism takes on an ugly ugly and egregious reality so the document then very quickly moves on to ask the question uh, what is racism and it says racism arises when either consciously or unconsciously a person holds that his or her own race or ethnicity is superior and therefore judges persons of other races or ethnicities as inferior. In the next few paragraphs, it gives examples. And, and we were talking earlier, you said that uh, it sets the bar really low. It sets racism the bar is. really low. So when a lot of times when we have these conversations about racism, we think that it has to include some sort of brutality, that racism has to include some sort of systemic intentional ill. The, the bishops aren't saying that. This is a really low bar that either consciously or unconsciously um, hold a superiority or a disregard for others or even an apathy because of race. That's a pretty low bar. All of the definitions that I would like to hold on to as to what is racism that excludes me, the bishop's definition of what is racism includes a lot of my thinking, um, a lot of my perspective. So this is really a challenge here. And that, that's good. That, that's good. Yeah. It says um, that racist acts reveal a failure. Now, this is so low level. Reveal a failure to acknowledge the human dignity of the person offended. I'm just even failing to acknowledge that a person, that, that this, this other is a person who possesses human dignity. And also, it's a failure to acknowledge that they're offended. I mean, we think about how much apologetic goes behind dismantling the person of color's claims of offense. Yeah, it can't be. And I, I, no, the, the, the bishops acknowledge that they are offended and you know we say this in in religious terms in spiritual terms um and not just in social terms we say sort of offended like with air quotes but we're talking in terms of morality to offend is it's a big deal like what does sin do it offends god and there's no air quotes around that offend right okay um, and it says that it's a failure to recognize the persons of color as neighbors of Christ, as neighbors that Christ calls us to love. Love is a verb. There's, there's an act here. There's an actuality here. So everything that you and I are describing, that a, a lot of the, that we're recounting here that the bishop's description of this is really sins of omission. So to them, racism includes all of these omissions, which is really challenging. And the next thing in the document, very much related to that, that I thought was really good in here, was the acknowledgement that built into the very institutions and structures of our country, these paths are already blazed for us to have these sins of omission, to have these prejudices, 
to have this willful ignorance. Yes. Uh, it, it talks about how racism can often be found in our hearts, in many cases placed there unwillingly by our upbringing or, and our culture. And this is how it describes institutional racism, where this, this willful passiveness, this willful ignorance, um, this willful failure to love, this willful failure to uh, see God imaged in the other has now made it easier for other people to commit these same acts and to have these same beliefs. Right. To uphold the practices and traditions um, that treat certain groups of people unjustly. So then it becomes not just passivity, but when we're upholding something, then there is certainly we're upholding these practices and traditions, then that becomes a commission, commission. I'm working with, I'm working alongside of these unjust structures to treat persons of color unjustly. It says that the cumulative effects of personal sins of racism have led to social structures of injustice and violence Here's this, this is, that makes us all accomplices in racism. And then it quotes the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1869, which is talking about social sin and structures of sin. So we see this dual direction happening here that the structures, the, the unjust structures make it easy for me to be passively racist, uh, which would be um, white privilege. And then it, we see that personal racism leads to and has led to the structures of injustice uh, and uh, of injustice and violence, again, that make us all accomplices in racism. So I got to that, which is the middle of page five, and my first reading through that makes us all accomplices to racism and put my name in it. Um, this is a real challenge for me to agree that this document is really about me. So when we had started our conversation before and you were talking about to whom you thought that this document or for whom you thought this document was written and you had described the demographic, the demographic is me. Um, yeah. So while perhaps not prophetic, certainly challenging enough to bring, I hope, um, some transformation and some some real deep rooting out kind of change. And, and I hope for our listeners, too. I had circled the line that you had mentioned. Right? This makes us all accomplices in racism because we we I benefit from these structures of injustice and violence yes. i i personally benefit from that so therefore i am an accomplice in that in some way which is really difficult to hear but then something i made note of at the very end of the section we're talking about today after it briefly talks about the experience of hispanics in the united states african americans in the united states and then and the native americans it says, um, these examples from these experiences demonstrate how as a nation, we have never sufficiently contended 
with the impact of our overt racism. And then it goes on, uh, nor have we spent the necessary time to examine where the racist attitudes of yesterday have become a permanent part of our preconceptions, practices, and policies of today, or how they have been enshrined in our social, political, and economic structures. And it moves on from there. It doesn't really, like I, I wrote a question in the margins, how do we sufficiently contend with this? Yeah, uh, what, is, what, would, what would qualify as sufficient contention? Yeah, good question. Like if you look at the horrendous acts of violence that we did towards Native Americans, the, the, the centuries of, of slavery, how do we come close to sufficiently contending with the impact of those actions that have become enshrined in our social, political, and economic structures? Yeah, so I'm going to say that here's where I come in sort of back to the place of sphere of influence. Um, I don't have a broad political influence, nor do I have a broad social influence. So to examine myself to the point of discomfort, if that's all that I'm going to contend with, and then call that sufficient contention, because I thought about it, I prayed about it, I had, you know, I felt like crap about it, and so I can console myself with having uh, an appropriate amount of, you know, guilt or something. That would, I, I, that would be like exploitation. What happens after I am convicted? What could begin to be a sufficient contention with these things when my sphere of influence is so small? The bishops go on to talking about listening to actually listening to people, to listening to their stories, and to believe them. It was interesting. So that that rally in Charlottesville was August, I think, 11th and 12th of 2017. I think those were the dates. And my youngest son was born on August 17th of that year. So it was interesting being in the hospital with your wife having a baby, things get burned into your memory. My oldest son, Simon, he was born within a day of the Sandy Hooks shooting. Like we were watching that in the news as we were in the hospital. And my youngest son, Francis, he was born when the Charlottesville rally was in the news. And we were watching that on watching that on the TV, listening to that in podcasts. So that rally was kind of a turning point for me personally, to some extent. I remember listening to podcasts at that time. There's a Catholic podcast I, I listened to, and they had a guest on Ike Ndolo. He's a Catholic musician, and he was talking about his, just his experience as a black citizen in the United States, right? And how his life was different. And he was talking about how, yeah, he was just sharing stories, things like his parents, you know, having having to give him the talk about this is how you act if you're ever pulled over by the police. I, he, I think he shared a story about how they were on vacation on a, on a road trip in a rural part of the country and they pulled into a gas station and immediately after, uh, you know, a police car showed up. Like it was really obvious that someone in the gas station called the police because this 
black family just pulled into the gas station, right? I remember that really, like that really, I don't know, kind of waking me up or, or shaking me awake to some extent. And I heard stories from other people around that same time as well. And I, I remember someone saying to me, imagine being black in the United States and seeing the KKK out in public without masks on, unashamed, and to hear the president not condemn it. So that may have been one of one of my turning points in paying attention to this. I think I probably started listening differently. A friend of mine was describing how her sisters, a Catholic couple of Catholic families, a um, couple of Catholic sisters raising teens around Baltimore, Maryland, black families. And she told me, she said, my sisters, when the kids go out, you know, you know the things that you tell your own kids, right? How to be safe, how not to get trouble, or whatever. Um, and this is a very devotional family. So they, you know, the kids will go out and they'll pray, you know, just do a little blessing on each of the kids on a Friday or Saturday night. They're going out to a party. They're going out to a football game. And one of the things that they pray over their children, over their teens, is um, they pray against racism and uh, police brutality. For all of the experiences that I've had as a mother of 10 kids, five boys, five girls, and most of them are grown, I've never had to pray that my children's race didn't make any situation worse for the people who were participating with them. That was a turning moment for me also. In the document here, the bishops talk about that some have said that racism is our country's original sin. There's a book, uh, it was a, a New York Times bestseller. I think it came out in 2015. It's written by uh, Jim Wallace. And the title of the book is America's Original Sin. I, I think Archbishop Chapu from Philadelphia, I think he, I think he made, used that phrase right after Charlottesville as well. Okay. Um, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to New America. One of the things that stood out to me in this book is that Five years ago, when this book was published, so this predates our president. This predates any of the, you know, the moment that we're in right now. And however, people, however, either he participates or, or is perceived to. I mean, this predates him. So five years ago, Jim Wallace uh, shared a statistic that said 72% of American white Christians believe that racist acts are um, unrelated episodes. 82% of black Christians perceive uh, racist events as a continuum, as all related. Those numbers there, I have to say that that made my heart skip a beat. That made me Hearing that complete breach in 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 perspective, this huge gap in perspective, made me really start to look and think: What is it that I am unwilling to hear? And 82% of my 
black Christian brothers and sisters say that a problem that I think is just, you know, these episodic things that they say is part of the fiber of their experience of living in this country. I was really convicted. What is the experience of those 82% of black Christians who were surveyed that I am unwilling to hear? So that was, that was a big moment for me. I'd thought about race a lot and had what I thought was a pretty airtight case. I was part of the 70% or 72% that had an apologetic about the unrelated episodes that had, I mean, I had a script. So maybe, I, you know, maybe I didn't think about race. Maybe every time I was invited to think about the experience of black people and persons of color in this country, maybe instead of thinking, what I did was just pull out my script. It sounded airtight. Um, and yet, here we are, two white people talking about the experience of race and persons of color in our country. And we actually really can't do that. That's not really, we can only say that we've begun to listen to people's stories. And we can really only say about this document, right, that this doesn't give us an insight on, on race or make us uh, experts by any means. For me, this document, Open Wide Our Hearts, is challenging enough to call me into the really small sphere of influence that I have, and that is my own mind, my own heart, my own thinking, um, and being willing, because of the challenge of the bishops, to risk, to drop the script, and to let the Lord really speak um, truth that I hope will set me free, and then that I can do something with that for other people. I, yeah, I would. Yeah, go ahead. I, I would say my impression, and yeah, my impression is that this document was written for was written for primarily white Catholics, probably the ones who meet that that stat you just um, put out, who either see acts of racism as individual acts or as the document says somewhere don't really believe that the racism is, is still an ongoing problem right uh, i i get the sense that that's the target audience of this yeah. document me yeah yeah absolutely the document written for me yes and anybody else who's sort of holding on to that because if these things are true if 82% of black Christians, and that's not even counting black non-Christians, right? If 82% of these people have this perception, say that this is their experience, I am either responsible to listen and believe them and allow their experience to change the way I think and see and feel about this, or... Or what? Or I don't know. Or I'm more of a jerk than than I thought. I that at some point my obstinance becomes a sin in in and of itself. And and I think on page four of this document, it it, it gets at that at the top 
of the page, it talks about how um, racism occurs because a person ignores the fundamental truth. It talks about ignoring, and then it refers to the story of Cain and Abel from the book of Genesis, and how Cain forgot the truth about his brother, right? Ignores and forgets. And at the bottom of the page, it talks about how the sin of racism can be a, a sin of omission. So in one sense, ignores, forgets, not acting, seem like passive things. But but what's being, what the bishops are talking about here is, you know, these are willed things. It's a willed ignorance to not listen to the stories, uh, the, the experience of, you know, 80% of Black yeah. Christians. Uh, the next step for me is to listen and to believe when persons of color who, because God said so, are my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, when they say this is true for them, this is truth for them, this is reality for them, I have to dispense with all of my uh, sort of my self-defense and my apologetic to discredit them in my own mind. To me, that would be the next step. Yeah. So, so can I ask, so where did that defensiveness come from? Why, why was your first reaction uh, to have a defense or an apologetic? Um, where, where would that come from? Having been the recipient of really some really bad experiences um, where the other person was a person of color and I was on some pretty hefty receiving end of some bad and scary things. When I shared those stories with others, the response of other people, white people, confirmed my fears that that is what to expect from persons of color. So my defensiveness came from feeling actually defensive in real some real situations. In the past couple of weeks, since I've really been thinking about this and praying about this, and in one of them, particularly, race was definitely, it was, it was, it was the stated contention that I was a white woman. In the past couple of weeks that I have been thinking about this and praying about this and reading this document and just really sitting with it. And the Lord has really helped me to understand some things because of the 82% or more than that, actually, of persons of color who experience racism as a fundamental reality in their life, how could, in the situations where I was, how could I not be perceived as the enemy, right? So, and here's the thing. What I really come to understand is those couple of experiences that I had they were in fact episodic. They were in fact not related to a grand pattern, um, a foundation, a theme of my life experiences. They were unrelated. They were episodic. When I think about those experiences in the lives of persons of color, that they almost can't even separate them. There's so many. And that awareness really made some lights go on the reasons for your defensiveness are more much more reasonable than mine i guess um so when i was in college especially which was the time i was really coming into my faith 
my big personal conversion was right after high school. I was very involved in the Students for Life group at, uh, on my campus. I was the leader of that for a few years in college. And my faith was wrapped up in my very conservative culture war politics to where they they were inseparable. I mean, not entirely, but right. there was unfortunately a lot of overlap between them. Right. So my reason for wanting to see acts of racism as isolated incidents and not structures of sin or, in, or institutional racism uh, was because of the political voices I was listening to and who I trusted at the time. Well, certainly, I can't discount them as being, uh, as I had said, a real part of the fabric of, of my own racism. Because when I turn around and say I had these experiences, there were enough voices. There were enough, what I thought, credible voices giving me an explanation for um, these episodes. Yeah, a lot of that was, you know, you bring up, you bring up a really, a really essential point. And, and I've said it before. It's really important for we, for us Christians, um, to really be careful how we wash our politics and religion. Because the people who hate my politics are very likely to hate the Jesus who I sort of attach to my politics as a prop. And I have been so guilty of that myself, Paul. I have, I have been so guilty of that myself. You had brought up um, the pro-life aspect, or, or you had brought up, not that pro-life aspect, you had brought up uh, being uh, very involved in pro-life. And, and later on in this document, I'm going to jump to it right now because I'm just going to sort of, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to share a word maybe here, maybe somewhat prophetic. Um, later on in this document, it says too many good and faithful Catholics remain unaware of the connection between institutional racism and the continued erosion of the sanctity of life. So one of the things that we've been hearing, and, and it is an absolutely reasonable response, is we've been hearing a lot of people sort of shouting back with the horrendous number of abortions that occur every day and the absolutely egregious number of abortions that are performed um, that, that black babies suffer in our country every single day, which is um, some 440, some, some ungodly number. And so there's a sort of, I mean, we can't ever forget that, that particular sanctity of life issue. It's showing up right now as a shout back Sort of like, I don't need to listen to these other things because I'm so busy worried about the number of black abortions that happen in this country. And, you know, I was praying about this. And, and here's a proposal. I wonder if God will not bless, really bless these heroic and widespread pro-life anti-abortion works and 
and, and movement until we, as a community of Catholics, have gotten brave enough and humble enough to allow the Lord to root out racism in our hearts, in our communities, in our parishes, and in our churches. I wonder if God is not saying, start here first. Okay. I, I think there's something to that. It's interesting to me that Archbishop Chapu, who, who is probably one of the most outspoken bishops in our country for the pro-life movement, he said racism is the original sin of our country. He didn't say abortion was. You know, there's certainly been abortions throughout our country, right? And I think not only are they very related ethically, right? It's the devaluing of the other to where when they become inconvenient to me, I can discard them, right? Or think less of them. But I think that they're, they're related. I think there's something to be said about them being related uh, more than that as well. When you look at the the rise of the eugenics movement in the United States and how that's tied in with the push to legalize abortion in the United States. Yeah, they're you, related in, in, in the foundation and, the, and, and they're related in a moment in history, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you see how minority communities are still very disproportionately affected by abortion. Yes. Um, if not overtly intentional, I think still a part of this structure of racism. I, I think there's definitely something to be said. Perhaps racism is the deeper wound. Yes. That if not needs to be addressed first, at least needs to be addressed equally. I will agree with that. The Lord is saying, let's, let's root this out of your hearts first. Um, yeah, because in this eugenics moment, in this eugenics movement, like, so the branches went out and the one branch was surgical abortion. Um, and the other was almost a ratification of racist thoughts and ideas. And we're fighting the abortion branch and not the ratification of the racism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that historically the anti-abortion movement, the pro-life movement uh, started from as it started as a more left civil rights movement. This was before Roe versus Wade. And it was, it was couched in civil rights language for a long time. It wasn't until after Roe versus Wade and the, the rise of the religious right uh, of the wedding of the Republican Party and um, conservative evangelicals um, that we see it kind of shift. But before Roe versus Wade, it was, it was a part of the civil rights movement. And I think we've lost we've lost something by it no longer being, being a part of that. Well, 
if we can look at the current events in addition to the abortions that occur in our countries, in our country, the number of black abortions that occur every single day, if we can look at current events in addition to the number of um, abortion clinics that are placed in inner city neighborhoods, we can see in these current events that these current events are ratifying what the bishops have warned here. We have not dealt with racism appropriately um, as a nation. We haven't faced it. I think so. So many people, I can hear the voices in my head right now, Paul, and they're they're jumping to some sort of like political application. So does that mean, so, so what does that mean? I have already stated what I believe it means for me, and that is to allow God to transform me, to not congratulate myself for being uncomfortable in the transformation, and um, to start listening to people's stories and believing them and allowing people to be credible witnesses of their own experiences. And there's no, there's no, there's no political application in there at all. And a whole lot of work has happened in that framework that I just said without ever shouting back any politics. And I, I would go a step beyond listening as well. Um, when I, it took a few days, it took five or six days after, after George Floyd was killed for me to sit down and, and watch the video. Um, and after I sat down and watched it, after I, after I watched it, my thought was, the people who aren't burning buildings down because of this are part of the problem. Um, that that was my gut reaction. The uh, impunity of the officer to know he's being watched and to know he's being filmed right. Right. Um, was just it was it was evil. It was like watching you know, like clips from the Holocaust, like that type of like just unmasked evil, you know? Um, it, But it reminded me of, because I have been reading through the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si um, on um, a, a Catholic social teaching, specifically how it relates to the environment. And there's one section in there where he kind of, you know, paints with a broad brush, but goes through uh, the state of the environment now and all the problems we have. But before he does that, he has this line uh, and he says, our goal is not to amass information or to satisfy curiosity, but rather to become painfully aware, to dare to turn to what is happening in the world into our own personal suffering. And thus to discover what each of us can do about it. Yes, absolutely. So I think the step beyond listening is a type of not empathy, but 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 compassion, right? Compassion. Like, yes. Even 
sharing in some way, allowing just a sliver yes. of someone else's experience of suffering, like allowing myself to feel that, to move me to do something. Right, to think what is next. And right, what would what would be the thing to do? Absolutely. And to experience it in really in a to experience it as a place in the path, not as an end to itself, not exploitively, like, yeah, oh, you know, I feel your pain and have that be the end of it. Um, like as I had said before, sort of self-congratulatory, uh, yeah, oh. I, I suffer with you. So it's, it has to be much more than uh, a self-conscious kind of and shallow. Yeah. It's, it's gotta, it's gotta go deep. Absolutely. Well, it, it has to, it has to be united with grace, yes. right? Like, so this document, it goes back and, and without diminishing the institutional like structural sins of racism in our country it it goes back to this this being in some ways a very personal thing right yes. it goes back to um god's original intent for human beings before sin was that we had this original harmony this original justice where we could see the face of god in the other person and sin broke that and now we have uh instead of seeing the face of god in the other person we see almost out of instinct someone who we can use for for our ends and the only thing that can heal this brokenness uh, is is grace right we can't we're not pelagians we can't just heal these wounds ourselves in some way so i think how we don't stop at the self-congratulatory suffer uh you know i feel your pain type of thing is to suffer with somebody, uniting that with grace so that it can be a vehicle where the Lord can heal us and the Lord can call us to the next thing. Amen. So you talked about, okay, all of that, the, but you said the, the go, going back to like this very personal call and grace. So let me, let me read from um, page seven here, the bishop's, totally ratify your perspective here and they say what is needed and what are we calling for is a genuine conversion of heart a conversion that will compel change and the reform of our institutions and societies so if we see the path here conversion of heart compel change and reform of institutions and societies the heart is the, is where it starts. Then they go on to say that conversion is a long road to travel for the individual. Moving our nation to a full realization of the promise of liberty, equality, and justice for all is even more challenging. But we can't do the more challenging until we begin to travel the long road to individual genuine conversion of heart. However, here's the grace, in Christ, we can find the strength and the grace necessary to make the journey. Pope Francis, they quote Pope Francis, and they say, in this regard, 
Each of us should adopt the words of Pope Francis. And again, this is where this document really became about me again. Like it's all about me. No, this this document really went into my heart and, and let me know that this was a, a personal moment here with the Lord. They quote and they say, let no one think that this invitation is not meant for him or her. And actually, I would say even this challenge is not meant for him or this exhortation is not meant for him or her. Let no one think that they're exempt from this. So what is needed? A genuine conversion of heart. In Christ, we can find the strength and the grace necessary. And as true as all that is, I think that exact paragraph is one of the things that I had um, difficulties with. I think I think I told you I didn't find this document very prophetic. Um, um, part of it is I, I read this document along with um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, "The Other America," that he gave. America, yeah. Here in um, here in Gross Point, Michigan. Uh, yes. like three weeks before he was assassinated, um, 1968. Uh, anyways, there's, there's one section of this really tremendous, just tremendous speech that I found incredibly prophetic. He, he brings up two myths that, that he's, he say, he says still pervade our nation. And the first one he says, is it, is it, one is the myth of time. That time is time is neutral. That time that time isn't um, destructive to those who are oppressed. Um, and then the very next myth is says there is another myth, and that is the notion that legislation can't solve the problem, and that you've got to change the heart. And he goes on, and he's like, I'm a Baptist preacher. Like, I believe in changing hearts. That's right. He said, I'm in the business of changing hearts. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. my gosh. True. It's true. He but, says. But but he goes on, he says, but after saying that, let me point out, uh, it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. The law can't make man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. Absolutely. Of course. So, so, and it, it may have been because the USCCB documents a pastoral letter. Right. Um, and it largely doesn't get into um, any type, any type of policy. Sure. But the same point, neither does Martin Luther King to some extent. He's just, I don't know. I think, I think that's where I found I wanted, I wanted some more teeth on that. Um, I think it's too easy to leave the bishop's document feeling like, okay, this is a personal problem I got to pray about. Rather, something that is something that's imperative, something that that needs to manifest itself in in policy sooner rather than later, because time is not on the side of the oppressed. Time is not on the side of the oppressed. So I would say I would disagree with you. Um, I had read, as I had just, I repeat, genuine conversion of heart, a conversion that will compel change and the reform of our institutions and society. I think I'm just hearing the bishop say 
that it has to start there, but it can't end there. It has to move on. That genuine conversion of heart has to compel other things to happen. So um, yeah, the paragraph that really sort of, I, I, I put the pages down and sort of wandered around thinking about this was precisely the paragraph that you think needed more teeth. So you would have a bigger dog than I would. <laughs> I, maybe that's, um, yeah, okay. Interesting that we would both sort of uh, come away from that with um, a, a, different, a different sense of the import of it. Well, what about let no one think you love this part because they're quoting Pope Francis. Let no one think that this invitation is not meant for him or her. Oh, I think, I mean, that was obviously the best line in, in that whole paragraph right there. But I also liked it because it relates back a couple of pages earlier when it talks about how um, because of the structures of injustice that we're all accomplices in racism, there's a yes. universality and lest we think lest we think we're special or not in need of healing they make it clear that no no, no all of us yes. need this so um i again i really appreciate that there is that universality but there's also that very particular personal aspect of this so i can't just sort of project this gosh i hope you all get your stuff together and stop being racist kind of thing there's 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 both of this. There's Monica as part of a community um, that needs a genuine conversion of many hearts, my heart and many, and compelling change. The, yeah, this this document, I mean, you had said you didn't find it, okay, perhaps not prophetic, really, but challenging. I, the, the part I didn't like was how easily it glossed over the church's own racism in the United States. And, and didn't take responsibility for itself, for the institution. I agree. I agree. I saw sort of a flurry and a rush to respond with all the good Catholic non-racists we ever knew. Yeah. <laughs> look, here's the three Native American saints. <laughs> and look, there's one sentence about how we forcibly kidnapped Natives and, yes. and tried yes. to, like, make them white. One yeah. sentence. Oh. And I, there's one sentence, and, and they did acknowledge that one of, like, the schoolmasters, right, said, yeah. um, kill, the, kill the Indian, not the man. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to say that I feel that the bishops challenged me more than they challenged themselves. And so, and I think, I think that's where you go back to the, to the, the 1968 statement from the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus, where it starts right off, the Catholic Church in the United States, primarily a white racist institution, has addressed itself primarily to white society and is definitely a part of that society. Yeah. What else is there to say? So before we end, what are you thinking from this first part here? Like if you're going to go away with one actionable item what would it be how does this change what you're doing i think it's listening for sure i think it's that uh i'm listening both without 
the defensiveness that you had talked about and a listening with an openness to feeling that suffering and 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 again not not in a self-righteous way but in a way where it it motivates me to act um i was listening to another podcast with a black priest and he was talking about racism in the in, uh, in the american catholic church and um he was talking about thomas aquinas and comments thomas aquinas made about anger and there's a handful of ways where anger can become sinful and the 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 first couple were the obvious ones where it's misdirected or um it's blown out of proportion right and we just yeah but the last one was where we don't allow ourselves to get angry at injustice yeah anger as a passion is supposed to it's supposed to give us courage to face injustice. It's supposed to move us out of complacency. That's the purpose of anger. So if we're not getting angry at real injustice going on, this is a sin of omission, really, right? a failure to be angry. A listening with without the impulse to get defensive, but also with the openness to feel a very small portion of that suffering and to feel angry about it, uh, to be open to however the Lord wants me to respond within my circle of influence. My answer would be very, very, very similar to that. So I won't, there's no point, there's no need for me to uh, repeat or try and improve on your words. Those are, that's, that's the actionable item. Um, honesty, humility, grace and to really enter into uh the another person's story you know what i want to do i want as we're ending here um because i don't think i can talk anymore i think i'm all talked out as we're ending here what i want to do is um read uh from micah again as a form of closing prayer sounds good in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You have been told, O mortal, what is good, and what the Lord requires of you, only to do justice, and to love goodness, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Thank you for listening to Apostles Field Guide. This podcast is a production of Where Peter Is at wherepeteris.com. Our theme music, Tilting at Windmills, is composed by Mark Pope. You can follow us on Twitter at AFG underscore podcast or email us at apostlesfieldguide at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.